The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Chanel Rien is the Chief White House Correspondent for One American News Network. Her daily broadcasts and investigative reports can be found at oawn.com. Chanel is the founder and curator of wordabies.com and she's based in Washington, D.C. To find out more about Chanel, please visit her website, chanelrion.com. That's C-H-A-N-E-L-R-I-O-N.com. Chanel, thank you for so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, sister? Fabulous. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. This is quite a unique experience. I mean, you're standing in front of the White House. Yes, I'm actually standing in front of the residence, and I will point the camera over so uh, hopefully none of your uh, motion sickness viewers will get sick from this, but watch. That's the residence. This -hmm. is the West Wing. I'll walk you into the briefing room if you'd like. Okay, that would be fantastic. We're on the North Lawn here. I don't know if you can see, but that's the North Lawn facing Lafayette Park. And then you have, we're about to walk into the briefing room and I'll show you some of that. I'll just give you a peek because I forgot my mask. There we go. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Of course. What a delight to be speaking to you. I don't know what your audience is interested in, but we'll uh, certainly try and address any questions or fun topics that your fan base would like to hear about. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, it must have been a random email that you got from me (laughs) from Australia saying, come on to a podcast. Well, I have a special place in my heart for Australia. Not only is uh, I have good memories in growing up, we used to go down there, but my younger brother is dating an Aussie right now. So his heart yearns for Australia all the time. He always is talking about you guys. So, Well, hopefully when the world opens up again, I can travel back there. You can travel over here and uh, get, get back to normal. But I would love to talk to you about your accomplishments and your history to start with, because you have such a, a unique story. And I believe you're very proud of that story as well about how you were raised and how you ended up being right where you are today. So could you talk us through that? And especially I want to talk about the education part of that because I feel like that's so important. Of course. I had a very unconventional upbringing. So uh, pretty much everything I ended up doing past my childhood was pretty unconventional, just following the footsteps of the way I was raised. And uh, starting from a very young age, I was homeschooled all my life, along with my two siblings. And that enabled my parents to drag us around the world. And we had a grand old time. We have family in Korea. My mom is Korean. So we'd spend three months out of every year in Korea. We would travel to Europe with my dad for business. And we always, the world was always our classroom. And the way we were raised was always learn from everything you encounter. No matter who it is or where you are, there's, it's always a time to learn and ask questions and constantly seek wisdom in your everyday experience. And so 
that kind of philosophy and upbringing really was, unbeknownst to me, the perfect primer for where I'm standing right now and what I'm doing today. I ended up going to Harvard and I ended up studying international relations. I never had any aspirations in broadcast or media. And several years later, I found myself very deeply involved in politics, always informally involved in politics as a child, growing up in deep red state Texas, growing up in the South, growing up in Florida, growing up in Missouri. I was always surrounded by a more conservative worldview, more traditionalist worldview. When I went to college, ended up having to suppress most of those viewpoints, which actually was for the better because it allows you to listen in on the other side and really formulate your worldview once you leave college, right? And that's kind of how it should work. But I ended up actively suppressing my worldview, but still being cognizant of the political realm. And that was just how we were raised. We didn't watch sports growing up. We watched politics. So combine that with my international relations. And I find myself several years later, I'll skip all the little details, but several years later, I find myself in DC and it was kind of a soda fountain moment. I was accompanying my fiance for an interview at the studio called OAN. And the guy who was interviewing him about a military story ends up turning to me and says, well, you wouldn't happen to be interested in a weekend White House correspondent position. And it was such a random statement, question, that I was flabbergasted and also taken aback. And I was about to say no, because I was about to tell him, I'm not in broadcasting. I'm not in journalism whatsoever. And Cortland, my fiance, ended up throwing me under the bus and saying, she'd be perfect for that. And then next thing you know, 9 a.m. the next day, I'm sitting before a camera and doing a screen test. And it was a funny experience. My, my soon-to-be boss was the president of the company. He ends up being a undercover boss that morning. I had no idea he was the president of the company. He ends up interviewing me without letting me know he was interviewing me. And I was hired that very day. And so their instruction to me was report the facts, use your international relations, use whatever foreign policy you know, material you bring to the table, bring that academia to the table, bring that political expertise to the table. We'll teach you everything else as far as you know, looking into the camera and pretending that a live person is behind that red dot. So we learned all of that along the way. I've been with OAN for now a year and a half almost. And uh, it's been a radical, wild, and very exciting journey so far. Oh, fantastic. I love it. And I think you're well primed to be in that position, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, it's certainly been even more intense now that we have such a radicalized media. And so it's been interesting navigating through the partisanship of media now. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little later on, but I want to take a step back again to your childhood and what that was like for you, especially with that upbringing that you had, to be so open instead of what seems to be happening these days with education and where it's sort of, it's rote learning, it's regurgitation, it's, some would say that the modern education system is not created for free thinkers, for critical thinkers. It's nearly like it can sort of get suppressed in people. And I mean, that's a general statement and it's not 100% correct, but I want to understand what that was like for you just to have that complete opposite Mm -hmm. viewpoint or education system. And are you grateful for that? I'm so every day I look at the system that, currently deigns to teach young minds. And it's appalling because we've now, in the United States at least, we have fully taken out teaching geography. We've taken out teaching history. Instead, it's all clumped into this social sciences. And now we're moving away from social sciences even to just take history out of the books altogether and just rewrite it. And that's appalling. It does teach a one-sided way of thinking. But here's something else that it also does not teach that I was certainly raised in. Resilience. You need to be able to resiliently hold on to beliefs that if they are challenged and resoundingly confronted, your whole world is not crumbled as a result. And you see so much sensitivity 
especially in academia, the moment someone comes in and has a different idea, it's not just an affront to the Marxists who have designed this sneak syllabus all this time. It's not just an affront to them. It's an affront to their entire worldview. And they teach this intense sensitivity to any time someone challenges your way of thinking. So not only are they teaching one way of thinking, groupthink and you know left-sided thinking, they're also teaching kids that if someone comes in and challenges you, you absolutely are going to be crushed and things are not going to go well. So that was something that I feel my father was an attorney. He was a litigating attorney. And he, I guess, through watching him maneuver through the world as someone who was who knew the law inside and out and knew the rights of the individual over the group, that absolutely had a huge effect in the way that we saw the world. And then our mom, with her Confucius Korean upbringing, conveyed that upon us. And that's where the learn from every single moment mindset came from. And respect, there's credence to having respect, but also not being submissive. So there's a balance, right? You don't want to be totally submissive so that you're nodding your head at the syllabus that you're presented with, but you at least can listen with respect and challenge with respect. And I think, I hope that's what comes through in the way that, you know, I ended up diving into journalism and the way that my siblings ended up diving into their individual pursuits. Mm, I love it. Thank you for sharing. The word that keeps going around my mind is freedom freedom. And it feels like at this particular point in time in the world, I mean, especially here in Australia and other parts, that freedom seems to be the thing that is being challenged at the moment. Freedom to have an individual idea, freedom to challenge the narrative, freedom to speak our mind, freedom to even go outside, freedom to even breathe fresh air, freedom to be able to speak openly about politics. So talk to me about freedom. That brings to mind, though, someone who was recently in the news on your side of things, the mother who had posted about her participating in a reopen her town, something like that, and the police came in and arrested her for a Facebook post. Uh We're not far behind you guys over here, frankly. It's sad to say, but the number one way to erode freedom is to erode individuality. And that has been the result of Marxist teaching over the past 70, 80 years. The goal of cultural Marxism is to sneak in through the education system, through the entertainment system, through government, and quietly erode the traditional systems that maintain society as it is today. So erode capitalism, erode individuality, erode family. I think that individualism goes hand in hand with freedom, and you cannot separate them. And I think that's one of the things that we're really going to see younger generations erode as they sign into these mass social media platforms. They all want to listen to the same music. They all want to be part of the same group. It was one thing in the past to want to be a part of a tribe. But today we have so massively increased the tribe size that I think we are eroding the concept of individuality, the concept of privacy, and the concept of separation between self and state, which really has been the goal of cultural Marxism from the start. But that's for a more academic discussion. But as far as like every day, here's what freedom is. To me, it is the exercising of one's individuality, regardless of what tribe you follow, regardless of your identities. Diversity truly is about being yourself, not about signing on to this group thing. So I think that that deserves a much more thoughtful conversation. It's not receiving any of that on the left. But I think that here in the United States, when you have entire groups of people labeled snowflakes because they cannot tolerate the other side's thinking, it's starting to wake a few people up. But I'm not sure if we're waking enough people up quickly enough for the younger generation to be affected. Mm. I want to talk about Marxism a little bit later on, but I want to talk to you about your creative expression because you have, you wear many hats and you express yourself through different mediums and through different skill sets, whether it's 
the language that you use and encouraging people to understand words and the importance of them. Some people I, I wrote yesterday that, you know, when we speak, it's like casting a spell. Mm. And I would love to talk to you about that. And also your artistic endeavors through your illustrations as well. And I mean, they're just two things that maybe a lot of people don't know about you. So could you share that and why it's so important for you to express yourself that way? Before I dived into this world here on the North Lawn, my goal was to publish what I started at three, you know, I had three books that I had written for young girls. It was a mystery series and it was designed to encourage young girls to be adventurous without being bitter about who they are or what they are or who they're becoming. And it was a multifaceted project. It entailed having a cultural immersion into like a completely different world and helping kids understand that it is just as important to be creative as it is to be intellectual. And we're living in a world where that's a binary choice often. You have the nerds who are sitting in one world and then you have the artists on the other side. And we lose so much of our humanity by forcing people to sit in one box and ignore the other. So reason I left, I mentioned my books was uh, I had a plan to publish them and help kids awaken to the fact of using both sides of your brain. Growing up, that's how I was raised. I always had a camera attached to my hand. I was always taking photojournalistic pictures. I was raised that way. I was always sketching, always drawing. We were, because we were homeschooled, we had so many extracurriculars. So we were taught music alongside our daily vocabulary lists, alongside our daily rundowns of the presidents and all the countries and their capitals. So growing up, we were all about balance, 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 balance. That has translated into several projects that I have just put out into the world over time. One of them was in 2015, 2016, when we first started watching this race between Trump and Clinton. I took to sketching political illustrations. That was a lot of fun because I ended up being able to exercise what I call visual rhetoric. Visual rhetoric was, in my mind, the blending of intellect and visuals, which you don't often put together. My goal was, in these political illustrations, was to allow someone with a glance to understand a fairly complicated political idea or a political scandal. Uranium One, for instance, put it all in one poster and have it so that people can glance at it and within about 15 to 30 seconds, take in or walk away with some idea of what was happening in that political scene. That was a lot of fun. Did that for about a year. And I just dabbled in it, posting things on Twitter and ended up having... Uh, growing a bit of a following. That was my first taste of Twitter. And that was my political side. About a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, going back to my books, I was yearning again to touch base with my artistic side. I launched a site called Wordabies, wordabies.com, a play on Sotheby's. And the idea was I wanted to every week, every day at the time, take a painting or a piece of art and combine it with a word that we have all forgotten. The concept under that is, with vocabulary and words, this is the landscape of our minds. If you don't have the words to describe what you're seeing, if you don't have the words to describe what you're feeling, you end up having a five-word vocabulary, like racist, sexist, xenophobe. And you watch that play out in politics, and it's just abysmal. Kids have forgotten how to use vocabulary because they're not being taught. We were specifically taught growing up, we were taught to memorize 10, 15 vocabulary words every single day. And that was our mission. Every single day, learn 10 to 15 new vocabulary words. And that art has been lost. Why? I don't know. I think we have a bunch of hippies probably overtaking our entire uh, education system and transforming and getting lax about the way that we're raising our young minds. But to me, being able to forcefully combine art with forgotten words and help us continue to grow our vocabularies was so important, not only for myself, but as a reminder that we must always be growing. We cannot till a certain piece of land and say, that's my garden. 
every single day we need to be growing our garden because we live in such an expansive world. So wordabees.com, that was the result of my love for vocabulary and my love for art. And I thought that was a perfect merger to combine the two concepts. Well done. Well done. I mean, everything that you're talking about really resonates with me and my vocabulary definitely needs an upgrade. That's for sure. And talking about the garden, it's biodiversity. It is about that. It's not about monocropping. And we're seeing that in the media at the moment. And that leads us into this next year and a half to two years that you've taken on this challenge or the invitation to do what you're doing now. And I mean, you stepping into that landscape where you just showed us the briefing room. Talk to me about that. I mean, what is that like walking into such an arena with (laughs) your contemporaries, if you wish to call them that, the other news outlets? And I mean, I'm outspoken personally in this country. I'm vilified for most days in the mainstream media, there's a story or a a false (laughs) story about me for some reason, maybe because it's... You must be trustworthy. Maybe because I put on the MAGA hat sometimes. (laughs) I talk about fluoride in the water or toxic sunscreens or potentially glyphosate that's being sprayed on foods is not great for us. You know, all of these sort of common sense things that we seem to have departed from using common sense about how to be healthy. So I'm used to it. I've been doing this for a long time and I've been in mainstream media for 20 years and I've got very thick skin. (laughs) So what's it like for you, your first day going into that briefing room or being around the media? Just take me through that experience. Was it, is it smoke and mirrors? Is it, are you worried about the future? Talk to me about this. I think any responsible person should be worried about the future, but also optimistic in the present. So when I walked in and my first real experience with the media, as you would say, it was a funny experience because you see these people on screen every day. You, you grew up with them, right? John Roberts at Fox or Kirsten Walker from, you know, you had all these people that you, have, you see on screen all the time. Some of them have, have you know, watched and helped host debates. So there's a bit of that kind of, am I really here? Am I really face to face with this person? Is CNN really sitting right across from me? There is a little bit of that. But I think the most nerve-wracking thing about the whole process was knowing that whenever you ask a question, cameras are all on you. You're on national TV, not just your network, but all the networks. And you're asking a question not only to the world, but to the highest office in the land. That took some getting used to. As for getting, you know, starstruck by the celebrities all around, that wasn't too nerve-wracking just because I'd grown up around these types of people. We went to New Hampshire primaries every four years to meet every single presidential candidate on both sides. Why? My mom and dad were like, you need to know that these people that you see on the screen, they're normal people. You shake their hands. They put their shoes on one foot at a time. They're normal people. So don't get awestruck by celebrities. So raised in that way, being right across from Jim Acosta is not that big of a deal. But being on stage and knowing that I wasn't raised in this environment, I was not, I did not have, you know, a degree from Columbia in journalism. That was very nerve wracking for the first few weeks, a few months. And also learning to go on screen and explain a very complicated issue in under 60 seconds also took some getting used to. But every single day, I still pause and I have my little moment of I'm really standing right here at the White House in Washington, D.C., capital of our nation. The entire nation is talking about what happens behind these walls and I'm right here. So that feeling, I think, will never go away for most of us here. And you do sense that. Now, as for the colleagues, it has been, uh, it's been fun because I know that I'm surrounded by mostly people who completely disagree with me. But at the same time, a handful of them are remain professional. Many of them are very childish. I will not name names, but we've had all kinds of vandalism at my desk, you know, throwing away cards, leaving nasty notes, taping up my chair, taking a Sharpie to our tent and vandalizing it. I mean, you've got some real childish things going on. So I joke, I never went to school formally besides, you know, grade school in France, but 
I've never been to school, so now I'm learning what high school must have been like for the rest of the world. And that's a daily adventure, just uh, being surrounded by people you know completely disagree with you every single day. Some are gracious, some are not, and it's just a fact of life. I'm very proud for our network that we are here, that we are able to provide that diversity of reporting that absolutely was lacking before because every question I used to hear in the briefing room was really just an extension of DNC talking points, Democrat Party talking points. And so we provide a little more diversity. We represent more of America that just is not represented here in the briefing room. So with that, I walk in with a shield of great strength, despite having very few allies here on the grounds. Amazing. I feel like 2020 is sort of the year of things being exposed on a grand scale, whether it's politicians that are corrupt, whether it's media that is also corrupt or bias, different sort of systems that are out there, the medical system at the moment, the pharmaceutical system at the moment. It feels like all of these institutions that we sort of have trusted and now coming to the forefront and being really exposed. And it's nearly like day after day after day, people are putting their foot in it and the lies seem to be very easy to see. And I don't think it's any, I don't think it's a mistake that you're in there at this particular point in time to help expose that and bring in new ways of thinking, new systems, new solutions to our to all of these problems, to all of these systems that seem to be dismantling under their own, dare I say, bullshit. And (laughs) (laughs) that's how you put it, though. Yes, this has been the year of exposure. Yes, on the medical front, on the foreign policy front, like look at how many people now understand how dependent we were on China for our essential medicines. 80, 90% of our medicines were outsourced to China and India. How many people are learning that for the first time this year. How many people are understanding that there is a pharmaceutical system that indeed will ignore life-saving science just to ensure they make a profit? That's appalling. Another thing, especially here, I think you guys will appreciate is the fact that censorship has really been exposed. Are we able to do anything about it? I don't know. I honestly don't know if we're going to be able to do anything about it. But first off... The number one step is exposing, as you say. Once people understand what's happening, we might be able to organize. We might be able to find leaders in each of these fields, the pharmaceutical, the technical, whatever field it is, to guide us into fixing the situation. But 2020 has certainly been a year of exposure. And hopefully it continues to be that year. Maybe that's our silver lining. I definitely think it is. Now, A lot of people, I mean, I was never interested in politics, I tell you. It wasn't until four years ago that around this time that Donald Trump was running for president up against Hillary Clinton. And that's when I became enthralled. You know, I got a little bit closer to what politics is because in Australia it's always been Labour or Liberal, which is sort of the same thing we're discovering. There's not much difference depending on who's in power over here. But with America, we had Donald Trump... And there was such disdain against this man. And for months and months, I would go into my workplace and the same people every day would be talking about Trump. This is before he was elected, saying the most vile, horrible things. And after a month, I couldn't hold my tongue anymore. And I said to these people, I said, why are you judging somebody on a job that they haven't done yet and may not get the job? I said, why don't you hold your opinions and your judgment If he does get elected, then let's see what plays out after four years and see actually if he can do the job, what he achieves, and let's take the personality out of the equation. I said, because if the other party gets in, and from my understanding, you're going to get more of the same, and the same doesn't look like it's going to be in our best interests. They basically said, fuck off, Pete. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I went, okay, well, you guys are getting angry every single day. You're living in fear about something that you just have no idea what's going to happen. So talk to me about that. When you saw Donald Trump running up against Hillary Clinton, what were your thoughts? 
My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. I was delighted. I was delighted because, and I will get in trouble for saying this if this gets out, but I am delighted because before he ran, I had given up on politics, completely disgusted at the cowardice that I witnessed on in our nation's capital. You had all of these chest-beating politicians going out here and saying, rah, 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 I'm going to be a different politician. And I became disavowed of ever believing any of them because I thought, well, look at their money, follow the money, and you find out who their allegiances are for. And it's not with the American people. The American people are donating, you know, real Americans are donating five, 10, $20 at a time. That politician does not owe any allegiance to the $20 donor who consists of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Instead, his allegiance is to one, two, or three people in his donor box. And when I realized that, I thought, okay, so neither party is okay. Neither of these parties should be in control. Can we please just take a bulldozer, save the buildings, love the buildings, take a bulldozer metaphorically and clean house, literally. So I kind of took my college years of suppressing my political beliefs and extended it to Honestly, why should I care? I haven't cared for the past four years. Nothing happened. Everything's the same now that I'm paying attention to it. Why should I care now? It's all the same. Why don't I just live a happy life and focus on my own problems? When Trump came on board, I saw someone who really had nothing to gain except for maybe being on stage and being able to make fun of Hillary Clinton. That's a lot to gain. But this is a man who was not controlled by any single monetary source. And I thought, he's the bulldozer. He's the one who can go in there, transcend politics, which is what we direly needed, and truly affect change. When you don't care what other people think, you can affect change. And I think that's one of the main lessons that I feel is very important when you're being an individual inside a groupthink society. You need to understand that your courage is the only weapon you have. It's not that you have allies, and it's great if you have allies. Your allies are not your other weapons. Your sole weapon is your courage. And so that's all we have in the face of devastating establishment. That's what I saw when I saw him announce. And honestly, it would not have mattered what party he announced as. His America First agenda transcends politics. And I think that's why this administration and Donald Trump in particular have changed the face of American politics forever and may affect other political scapes in different continents. Who knows? But it's a powerful movement. Cannot be ignored. Let's talk about Democrats and Republicans for the Australian audience. And I've got an audience all around the world. But from what I have understood, some of the values, perhaps, or ideologies have nearly flipped over the last decade or two. And I mean, that could be very simplifying what that means, but I've heard people that were Democrats are now pro-Trump. And it's like, and even as you said, Trump is the bulldozer for both parties. Like he's not protecting the Republicans at the same time. He's challenging them. So talk to me about the two sides. Sure. I don't think there's so much of a flip. I think there's more of a flip for If you go back in American history, you go back to Reagan, there was something known as the Reagan Democrat. And that is someone who was a lifetime Democrat who voted for a Republican. I think that's what you're seeing a lot more of quietly back in 2016, a little more loudly going into 2020. I believe there are far more converts from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party than there are the other way around. Now, historically speaking, It's not been a matter of flipping ideology. It's been a matter of hijacking credit. And here's what I mean by that. The Republican Party from 1848 has been the party that fought, and even further back, has been the party that fought for all human rights, that fought for women, for slaves, 
for every human right possible. The Republicans were fighting for that. And you have the 19th Amendment. Over four decades, the Republicans fought for the woman's right to vote. The Democrats blocked it every single congressional session until finally it passed. Now, what happened? In the 60s and 70s, you had the women's lib movement move in, swoop in, hijack the movement and say, this is a Democrat Party victory. You had that happen. You have the race relations completely flipped. Republicans have always been the party of anti-slavery. Why? Because they have been the party of individualism, freedom from higher powers other than God. So it's not so much that parties have flipped. I think that Democrats have mostly hijacked some of the good things about the Republican Party and really taken it as their own. And as far as the physical, like literal flipping of parties, I largely see on the ground more Democrats saying they're voting Republican than the other way around, though the media will conflate that image and make it sound like more Republicans are fleeing at their own party. That's simply just not the case on the ground. Hmm. Thank you for the history lesson. I love that. <laughs> it, especially, you know, the, you have to talk about history when you talk about these things. And so without it, you forget the core of the discussion, which I think is far too common right now. So let's talk about Trump just for a minute and his use of language. I was interviewing a, um, our probably only journalist, sorry, my dog is having a dig down there, out of our only journalists in Australia that has stood up and backed Trump himself, a fellow called Alan Jones, who is quite famous over here as a journalist. And he was saying that we were saying, I said, Donald Trump is a very articulate, intelligent man. And we were ridiculed in this week's newspapers for saying that Donald Trump is intelligent and articulate. And I watch the press conferences every day, pretty much. And I see how he talks especially to the media, he nearly treats most of the media like children in the way that he speaks, you know, and I get that. So talk to me about his delivery and his use of the English language and why do you think he speaks as he does speak? For influence and impact. He is a marketing man at heart. A true marketer understands that in order to convey a message, you have to say it at least 30 times before it actually registers in the human brain. Marketers understand that you have to have the Geico lizard repeated across billboards, across ads, across print. You have to have a consistency with the message in order for it to actually start assimilating into the common vernacular. So what he does, I believe, is a very, very effective marketing tool to ensure that not only the press understands what he is saying, but the American public who is listening to the news, not 24-7. We're listening in fragments. So when you're listening in fragments, you cannot assume that your America first, make America great again message is going to be heard by every single person. You have to pound that every single day. Every message you convey needs to be repeated. So you see a lot of repetition. The academics out here view that as, you know, they snub their noses at it and say, oh, it's a sign of meek intelligence to be repetitious. But in my mind, it is the sign of someone who knows how to convey complicated messages, condense them into phrases, and make sure that not only the press understands it, but the populace absorbs it in the fragmentary way that we absorb news. It is the only way to get your message out. So he's become also a marvelous debater. And this, this is something that I find uh, no one, hardly anyone points out. You'll notice that when he is confronting those journalists in the press briefing room, they'll start to ask him a question and he'll interrupt and correct them right then and there about a certain terminology they're using or how they're phrasing it. He'll stop them and say, excuse me, it's not this, it's that. That is a sign of a master debater, someone who is able to constantly reframe the argument so that you're not playing on the other chessboard. You have to be, in order to play on your own chessboard, you have to be in command of not only the language, but the terminology. He does that every single time he faces that briefing room. And it's, I believe, a very effective way of communicating his message, which is why a lot more people 
can tell you what Donald Trump stands for today than they can Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Mm. Basically, what he's doing is what you were doing with the political cartoons and illustrations. Small amount of time, maximum impact. So that's a sign of intelligence. Maybe. <laughs> I think it's certainly a sign of effective communication, which you don't necessarily have to be the biggest genius in the room to be a good communicator. And that's something that Barack Obama understood. Remember? Hope and change. Very, very simple concepts. Most of us didn't know what that stood for, but we could tell you that's what he stood for. Hope and change. So, you know, it doesn't, may not necessarily convey intelligence, but it does convey if you are a good communicator, your message sticks and it's because you're able to convey it in ways. I've got a question for you about what's happening currently. And that is, I mean, we see the riots happening in Portland, New York falling to pieces. And Trump every day says, I just need the invitation. I just need them to ask me to come and fix it and we'll help them. It's a really interesting thing is playing out because you would think as a president, you'd be able to sort that out. So how does that work? Because there's some heavy shit going down. There's really heavy stuff going down. And if he presses go, does that mean that he's coming across as like a dictator or how does it work, that chess game that's currently happening? It's certainly a chess game. And it's one of, going back to an earlier talking point, exposure. So we don't have a monarchical system here. This is a president and he has these governors and these mayors and these different jurisdictions he must respect. So he's being a true federalist when he says, this is your problem, but fix it. If too many Americans are harmed as a result and you clearly are doing nothing, we will intervene. Now, the flip side of that, he has intervened. He has actually intervened in Kansas City, for instance, with Operation Legend. He's gone into Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he's uh, sent in the National Guard. So you have instances where he has stepped in, but so much of it is actually a play to show the American people the difference in leadership. You voted for a Democrat. This is the kind of life they will give you. Burning, looting, murdering, that's the kind of uh, reality they will allow. And if enough people see that, there's really going to be a wave, a tidal wave of changed hearts and minds. And I think that's perhaps part of the calculation, but it's mostly a respect for the federal system, which is most of this is in the hands of the governors and the mayors. The flip benefit is that most people will now see the clear difference in leadership between the two parties. Hmm. On a personal note for me, what I'm seeing in Australia at the moment is the politicians talking about vaccines. And I'm not sure whether you can, whether you're open to talk about this, but we're also witnessing Donald Trump. And I've spoken to a few people recently that said, if Trump loses, the Democrats will make vaccines mandatory for every single person across the country. Now, but at the other time, Donald Trump is talking about Operation Warp Speed with therapeutics and vaccines and having the military ready. Are you privy to be able to explain to us what your thoughts or opinions are on that? Because personally, mandatory vaccines in this country, is, the people are against it. So I know that Trump is absolutely opposed to mandatory vaccines. He's not opposed to vaccines, period. So there's a huge difference there. You have the Democrats who want to impose their authority on a medical front on a very, very scary scale across the nation. And there are examples to be found worldwide where there are mandatory vaccines. You can't get a driver's license unless you have the following vaccination. The Democrats clearly have that in mind. The Republicans, Trump, he's long been opposed to vaccines in general. He's not an anti-vaxxer, but he certainly has been sided with those people. When it comes to finding a solution to COVID, he wants that vaccine available to those who want it. But under a Trump administration, it will never be forced. And I think that's probably the best answer I can give you in terms of what's actually happening here. There's a lot of people in the United States, even if it's made available, they won't take it just because they would rather have COVID than have the vaccine. There are people out here, though, who feel their lives would be at risk, and so they must take it. So that's the beauty of the system we have now. You are free to take it if you want. You are free to wear a mask if you want. That is, to steal a phrase from Roe v. Wade, your body, your choice, right? 
In saying that, I don't want to throw you into the deep end here. I've got a couple more questions, if that's okay. But when we've got people like Bill Gates talking about mandatory vaccines and the connection with Anthony Fauci and Fauci being a part of Trump's team, how does that work? And how do you as a journalist navigate that? Because I never really hear Donald Trump talking about Bill Gates and the power that he yields over the world with these vaccines. So feel free to answer it if you like. And sure. So one thing we know about Trump, if anyone ever watched The Apprentice uh, a few years back, he surrounds himself with a diversity of voices. He does not, and he said this himself, he does not agree with everything that Fauci says, but Fauci has become kind of a necessary voice for those on the left who feel that he's the sufficient medical expert on the team that's going to save all of our lives, when the reality is he's had some pretty questionable judgment, some questionable affiliations. He may be undergoing investigation soon for insider trading. Don't know yet. We haven't confirmed fully. Certainly some big question marks around him. Trump knows that. But he keeps people around him that have a diversity of views. He does not surround himself with yes-men. So he has Fauci, and on the other hand, he has Peter Navarro. And on the other hand, he has Dr. Atlas. You have different people weighing in so that you have all the ideas laid out on the table, and you're able to pick the truth or at least the best option of all the options on the table. So that's to explain kind of the politics behind all of this. He knows where Fauci stands and he disagrees with most of what Fauci says or does, but uh, it's important for him to maintain a team that is diverse, which is a completely new concept to those on the left, which is why they don't understand this relationship, this uh, task force that he has in place. And then Bill Gates, how does that fit into all of this? Because there's a lot of ill feeling towards this man and the power that he has as a software developer that seems to influence politicians around the world. Where does, and I've never heard Trump really speak of Bill Gates. You'd think that would be a good question to ask. Certainly. I think that there's too much money and influence behind Gates to really allow anyone to question him without being slammed by an apparatus of media types who will then say that you're a conspiracy theorist. But you're right, he hasn't mentioned it. It would be a good question. It's been posed several times in the briefing room and mostly towards Fauci or towards members of the task force, not to Trump directly. We know that he knows of these financial ties. I think that one of the ways that he has survived this very deeply ingrained establishment is that he's been able to allow things to play out. What I mean by that is I alluded to the fact that Fauci may be under investigation either now or soon for insider training related to the Gates Foundation. Trump has been known to allow things like that to play out. This is just, this is exactly what the DOJ does. You allow the criminal to keep doing what they're doing so that they expose all of their fellow criminals and then you can finally arrest and bag them all. Not saying that Fauci's a criminal, but I'm saying he has been known to do that, to allow things to play out as long as it's not harming the American people. And his calculation there, I think, is confidence that we do have a vaccine of some kind on its way, one that is not going to be as harmful as some think. And also the blood plasma treatment was also a solution that really has been a very effective. But the reality is, Pete, and you know this too, the actual fatality rates have been much lower than the media portrays it. They make it sound like we're walking outside and people are dying left and right. The reality is it's a small percentage of people who unfortunately die from this disease. So if the president felt like people were dying as a result of Fauci being in his team, then certainly he wouldn't tolerate that. But the numbers just don't add up. You're right. We'll have to see what plays out. I don't, I can't speak for him when it comes to how he feels about Gates, but it's certainly mm -hmm. been best before in the briefing room. Fantastic. Okay. Next four years, if Trump wins, what do you expect to see? Because he's made some pretty amazing executive orders and, and put into place some amazing, <laughs> you know, he, he's changing things. So was that just a starter for the next four years? And the next four years, we'll see huge things globally. And alternatively, 
what happens if he loses? Mm-hmm. I think that you will see an acceleration. Like you've seen the third year of his term, his internal team and his legislative team really found their pace. And they've really been able to get a lot of things done in this last year. So they're kind of like just building their team and their tempo and they're finding their battle rhythm. As you say, gotten a lot done. I think that if he wins the next four years is going to be a total acceleration of that battle rhythm that the Trump administration has established. You will see a lot more tantrum throwing from the left, of course. They're going to bring out some more impeachment stuff just to slime him as he leaves. If he doesn't win, I feel the Biden-Harris ticket is something that will really panic a lot of factors that will affect us on a day-to-day basis. You'll have uh, Wall Street panicking. You'll have investors panicking. You'll have suburban flight. You'll have a lot of people leaving the cities to flee to the safety of the... uh, non-city, if you will, a Biden presidency will not be so hard for him to step into because there's so much of the establishment here in D.C. that's already in place waiting for them to come back. So it would be pretty rough, I think, on the streets. I think that a lot of people will be very upset. I don't know if that if arms will be taken up, but certainly there will not be a lot of happiness on the markets or in the civil discourse And if Trump wins, then I think it's going to be an acceleration of what he's done so far. That is reestablishing America on the global stage, reestablishing America's self-sufficiency. I think that those two items will be enormous and will absolutely play out in the next four years. And my last question is, in Australia, we have some of the most crazy lockdowns, especially in Victoria at the moment. It just, it makes no sense whatsoever, like no sense. And the science and the data, as we know, is just ridiculous. We actually don't very, we don't really have anybody like you over here asking those important questions in the media. And you were talking about the Marxist regime, so to speak. And can you explain what that is globally and how it's rolling out potentially in New Zealand and Australia, because that's what I see. I see Australia and New Zealand nearly as the testing ground of... I think that you guys are ahead of us by probably 10, 15 years. If we allowed for a more progressive style leadership across the nation, we would have the kinds of uh, lockdowns that you guys are facing. We'd have the kinds of gun rights being trampled upon that we see over there. I think we're about 10 to 15 years behind you guys if we were to stay the course on a more progressive track. The poison that is Marxism has really been a victory of stealth. Those who have designed a Marxist system and envisioned a Marxist system decades and decades ago have really been able to allow their ideology to live much further than their own lifetimes and to sneakily get into all of these systems that we hold dear and infiltrate and infect and change. The conversation that we are in a year of exposure, I think that many more people are waking up to this idea that, no, we don't want to erode the entire idea that there are two genders and we're not going to teach our children how to dress and drag. And no, we're not going to you know, force people to abide by bizarre laws that invade their personal space. A lot more people are waking up to that. I think as far as the Marxist ideology, it will always be here. It will always be alive as most ideologies are in history. So it's just a question of identifying them and exposing them. And I think that's a very pertinent point you brought up back as far as this year and how remarkable it has been. The more we educate our younger people, the more we educate the younger generation, not just children, but the younger generation, that life is better when you're able to make your own choices rather than giving and ceding your rights to a central power. That's a very basic lesson. The more we're able to send that message out and infiltrate on our own, that is the way to having a happier, more prosperous life. I think the better we'll be. But hopefully you guys have an awakening as well. I'm not sure if that's possible. I don't know the politics down there too well, but hopefully there is going to be an awakening, not just here, but elsewhere. 
And lastly, is there an agenda behind this globally, this what's taking place now around the world? Or do you think it's, I guess the question I'm asking is, is there anyone driving this bus or is it on a spiritual level, just our consciousness being, being our spirituality being challenged and for us, all us, for us to wake up? Like, are there masterminds behind this? And it's the most conspiratorial question I'm going to ask. But. Absolutely. I think there are absolutely masterminds and they may have to do with money. Follow the biggest money bags in the world and you'll find that they have their hands in all kinds of nonprofits and all kinds of philanthropic deeds that they hide and disguise behind good. And really, they have an agenda. I just put out a report today exposing or discussing at least this phenomena that we're seeing. We have in America, I mean, you've heard of George Soros, and he is this philanthropic billionaire who goes in and he affects our political landscape by donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to small campaigns, to these, to the judicial system, to nonprofits around the world, all to push a very globalist agenda. He wants to push away borders. He wants to have mass vaccinations. He wants to have those things. And he's making that happen with his money. And he is indeed very wealthy. We have another phenomenon. You have Jeff Bezos from Amazon taking over Washington Post. He's a billionaire. He's got ideas about how the world should operate and his reporters act accordingly to keep their jobs. You have The Atlantic just this week pushing out a patently false story, totally made up, fiction factory galore. They made up a quote from the president that no one was able to step up and say he said that. They were exposed for the frauds that they have become, which is unfortunate because Lauren Powell Jobs, the widow for Steve Jobs, she inherited $20 billion and she has now taken that $20 billion and she's decided that she's going to change and dictate the way that America lives through her own philanthropic efforts through the media. She purchased The Atlantic. She brought in her own editors. She brought in her own pet writers and they fulfill her personal mission. That's a problem when it's veiled as real journalism, when it's veiled as fact. So we have this crisis where you do have a handful of very, very rich individuals, very powerful individuals who do pull the strings in society. It's not a conspiracy theory. All you have to do is follow the money and you will find that they all lead to some very few pedestals in the world. And it's a uh, we are in a spiritual battle, but we're also in a battle of taking down the establishment that hides these sources of money and power. Hmm. So have you got confidence for the next four years? I do. I see young people every day waking up, realizing some of the realities of this, of everything that we, we've just spoken about. I have confidence. I think that we are going to watch the pendulum swing from having a very oversensitized, very generic society to one that says, wait a second, it's okay for us to be different. It's okay for us to have this diversity of viewpoint. And it does not mean that we all have to become slaves to the state. I think more people are waking up to that. And for that reason, I have a lot of confidence in the next few years. Chanel, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an amazing conversation. I just want to tell you that I love you. I'm so glad that you're in that space, asking those questions and showing what an investigative journalist can be and how to show up in every single day. And, um, you yeah, know, just, I guess, a way shower, showing the other ones how to behave, you know, with integrity. So thank you for agreeing to be on a podcast with me and sharing an hour of your time with a, a chef from Australia. It's been an absolute delight. I look forward to a time when the borders are opened and we can visit each other's countries. I think it would be a marvelous refresher from the year that has been 2020. Thank you. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. 
IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.